Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Now, it may only be a myth, and it is certainly not medical science, but there is a popular theory that a man who cannot whistle has homosexual tendencies. M hadn't whistled since he was a boy. Unconsciously, his mouth pursed, and a clear note was emitted. That was Ian Fleming in Man with the Golden Gun, Bond novel, of course, uh, written in 1965, and with me is massive James Bond fan, Dominic Sambrook. Dominic, um, we are doing this episode on James Bond because the new Daniel Craig film, No Time to Die, is out this week. Do you imagine that that's the kind of dialogue we'll be getting? <laughs> I thought you could ask me to whistle. <laughs> yeah, well, go on. <laughs> I'm not going to whistle. I, I mean, I feel like it's a lose-lose, whatever, whatever I do. I think it's very bad for the reputation of this podcast if we start whistling in an attempt to prove our sexuality one way or the other. Um, yes, so it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it, that... Um, the Bond phenomenon has endured so long, and I'm sure we'll go on to talk lots about its historic significance and, and what it means about Britishness and so on. But actually, if you go back to the books, there's so much cancellable material. I'm going I'm to put my hand up and say I've never read one. You've never read a Bond book? I, I've never read one, but I, have, I don't need to because I've read you on it. Right. Your yeah. fine book, The Great British Dream Factory, The Strange History of Our National Imagination. You have a fabulous chapter on it. And also I've read Simon Winder's book. Um, well, he's my editor. Um, it's, it's also incestuous. Um, yeah. Bond, the man who saved Britain or whatever. Yeah, so I, hilarious, I hilarious it, It's book. very funny and it's full of fantastic quotations, so I don't think I actually need to have, have read the novels. But I will say that the quotations in the novels, <laughs> well, <laughs> goodness. Yeah. It's quite strong stuff, isn't it? So we did a podcast, Thomas Sherlock Holmes, so we've done one on a fictional character already, and this is our second one on a purely fictional character. And I think... Um, they make a nice pair, actually, because in, in their different ways, Holmes and Bond are both representatives of Britain and Britishness. 
but they're also fascinating historical phenomena. So Holmes is obviously sort of late Victorian Edwardian Britain and, and Bond is a creation of well, the post World War Two, nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties. But the, but compared to Holmes, I mean there's there's so much in Bond that just kind of well, reeks of his age, I guess. I mean it's it the attitudes to race, to sexuality, to all kinds of things are yeah. by our standards. You know, it's only a few decades on, but I mean, it seems like a completely different age, whereas Holmes, in a, oddly, seems a much more contemporary character. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that's partly because um, Ian Fleming was reactionary even by the standards of the 1950s. I mean, he was intensely reactionary. Um, and uh, even at the time, some people sort of remarked on that, and there's a very famous review. For, so for people who don't like James Bond, they'll enjoy this. This was Paul Johnson in The New Statesman in 1958, so he's just been reading Dr. No. And he says, um, I've just finished what is, without any doubt, the nastiest book I've ever read. I had to suppress a strong impulse to throw the thing away. There are three basic ingredients in Dr. No, all unhealthy, all thoroughly English. The sadism of a schoolboy bully, the mechanical two-dimensional sex longings of a frustrated adolescent, and the crude snob cravings of a suburban adult. Mr. Fleming has no literary skill, and this seems to me far more dangerous than straight pornography. The novel is badly written to the point of incoherence. And that's sort of stuff about snobbery, sexism, and sadism. I mean, they're what we Bond fans love about James Bond. Um, Is it, though? But, I, well, I think they're very important there's, there's, elements of it, actually. But there's a huge chasm, isn't there, between the novels and the films? Because I, well, I, 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 was, I was the Roger Moore generation. Yeah. And, and to me, it seemed pretty much on a level with Carry On. I mean, it seemed about as sadistic as, as a Carry On film, i.e. not very. It was, it was kind of smutty... And that was about yeah. the limit the, of it. That's all so, you see in it, the smuts. Um, yeah, so so I, I think because of that, I've never really... I, I mean, I never felt... I've never really taken James Bond seriously. I mean, he seems about as serious as Kenneth Williams. Well, I think the Roger Moore films, which people of our age probably take as the template, are, to some extent, aberrations within the sequence. So there's, there are more non-Roger Moores than there are Roger Moores before and after. Um... And the Roger Moores are not representative in any way of Fleming's vision. Um, now, obviously, they work as kind of parodies to some extent. They're parodies of, of themselves. Yeah. Um, so, so they're kind of Austin Powers before Austin Powers. They are Austin Powers. A bit. And that's one of the things why I don't think Austin Powers is quite as funny as lots of other people think, because it's parodying something that was already parodying yeah. itself. Um, but I think... Well, I mean, maybe if you're a sceptic, I, I need to persuade you that James Bond No, Boy well, I'm matters. not a sceptic. I'm not a sceptic, but, but because I grew up with um, the Roger Moore one, and then because basically the only other ones I've seen are the um, the, Maurice, the Daniel Craig ones, yeah. where he's kind of earnest and tortured. Yeah. And basically, I guess, trying to square the original material with the very different cultural mores yeah. of the 21st century. I, I hadn't properly realised... <laughs> Kind of, kind of what the novels were like, and so yeah. they're quite strong stuff, aren't they? They are um, quite strong stuff. And, I mean, and the funny it, thing is, I don't think they're out, very. It's brought out even more clearly in in the Simon Winter book than in in your book. Um, so, could we just look at, at Ian Fleming? Of course. Um, yeah. So, so tell me about Ian Fleming and where this stuff is coming from. 
So Ian Fleming, um, he's a very strange man. I well, think it's fair to yes. say. He's born, <laughs> say that. So he's born in 1908. His father's a Tory MP, Valentine Fleming. They're from a, a family that made a lot of money in jute and they've moved south from Dundee originally in the Victorian period and become very rich. So his father is a Tory MP and a barrister and a merchant banker. Um, and his father, Valentine, is killed in the First World War in Picardy in 1917. Churchill wrote an obituary of him that appeared in, I think, the Times. Um, and Fleming Ian, you know, what is he, nine or so when his father dies? And uh, that obviously has a colossal impact on him. And he has a picture of his father and he's always trying to live up to his father's tremendous heroism. Um, the other thing that uh, Ian Fleming suffers from is he's a younger brother, his older brother, Peter. So Peter Fleming is a far more impressive man in every way. He's kind of forgotten now. Uh, there's a great sort of tragedy in that everybody remembers Ian Fleming, but not Peter Fleming. Peter Fleming is a genuine hero and an adventurer. So he's married to Celia Johnson, the actress who's in Brief Encounter. So he's, he's got a film star wife. Um, he's famous because he goes on an expedition to find... Um, the explorer Percy Fawcett, who had gone on this expedition of his own to find the lost city of Zed in Brazil. Kind of El Dorado quest. El Dorado. So Peter Fleming, when he's a young man, goes to try and find him. Doesn't find him, but writes a best-selling book called Brazilian Adventure, which is a kind of true story of this incredible journey. Then he writes another book about an incredible journey called um, News from Tartary. So he's done an overland journey in the 1930s from Peking to Kashmir. Um, through kind of China, um, over the Himalayas, all this sort of um, amazing. Um, he's an but amazing. He was also, man. I learned, um, he he was um, the first person to be richly cursed at a revived witch ceremony, <laughs> <laughs> which which according to to Dr. Robin Douglas, who told me this on Twitter, was yeah. carried out by a group of Oxford students. Well, he wow. was at Oxford and he was a member of the Bullingdon Club. He was a member of the Bullingdon Club, but the curse clearly didn't work because he had this tremendous life. Well, um, but he didn't he, become a famous novelist. So perhaps no, did. he didn't. He, well, it's only because of Peter Fleming, by the way, that Ian Fleming becomes a novelist at all because his brother pulls strings for him. So Ian Fleming has this father and this brother who are, in their different ways, kind of symbols of British pluck, pluck and daring yeah, do and, yeah. Yeah, and stuff. They are absolutely the... And masculinity. They're the men you would want to be. And Ian Fleming himself is an utter failure and a dud. So he goes to Eton and he's not academic. They put him in the army class at Eton so that he can go to Sandhurst. But he goes to Sandhurst and he's a failure. He gets gonorrhea from a prostitute and has to pull out of, um, of Sandhurst. He applies for the foreign office and he fails the entrance exams. He goes into banking and he fails at that. He tries to set up as a stockbroker like his, I think his father um, or some of his family connections had and he fails at that. Um, so he's just an utter, and he's also quite foppish. And he's not a man. The weird thing about Ian Fleming, so much of Bond is a wish fulfillment because he's not a man's man. He's so not a kind he'd, of. He'd be worried about an inability to whistle. Yeah, he's a man. Yeah, he's your man who can't whistle. Um, and if you, if you see, Simon Winder in his book has a very funny section about photographs of Ian Fleming. So Fleming often, in some of the sort of classic photos that are used, he's wreathed in smoke to make him look like a man of mystery. But if you look at the photos of him where he's not wreathed in smoke, he's just this sort of simpering, Noel Coward <laughs> fellow with a bow tie and the kind of massive cigarette, cigarette holder. holder yes. Yeah. I mean, the cigarette holder is not hard. The cigarette <laughs> no. holder just makes him look so camp. So yeah. he, and he has this one moment in the Second World War 
where through family connections, again, he gets a job as the personal assistant to the Royal Navy Intelligence Chief, Rear Admiral John Godfrey. And he's basically M. He's like the real life M, the head of, uh, of intelligence. And this is Fleming's kind of, you know, he's living the dream. So he's, I mean, he's a bit of a pen pusher, really, although he does plan commando raids and things. Um, but obviously the war doesn't last very long. So then he has to get a, a proper job. He gets a job as the sort of running the foreign correspondence of the Kemsley um, newspaper groups. That's the group that includes the Sunday Times. And as usual with Ian Fleming, because he's posh and because he's got all these connections, it's a very cushy job. So he can take off for two to three months every year in the winter and go off to his house that he's built in Jamaica called Goldeneye. And basically it's when he's there that he decides one day, I'm going to um, I'm try and write a novel. And he writes um, Casino Royale. He starts writing it in February 1952. And this is, very this is classic Ian Fleming. They say, he sends it to Jonathan Cape, and they don't think it's very good. And they're not tempted, you know, they're not really interested in publishing it. And basically, Peter Fleming, who's a much more successful man in every way, says to Jonathan Cape, no, no, you really must publish my brother's book. And they do. And, and Casino, Casino Royale yeah. is... It, it's in set in northern France. Yeah, so it's not very exotic at all. So it's not exotic I mean, at all. Yeah, no, it's a place you go on an exchange or a sort of rubbish school trip now. Um, but at the time, I suppose it's exotic. The Casino Royale Les Eaux, sort of Le Touquet type place. Because it's a product of, of of austerity, Britain, and that's the Simon Winder thesis, isn't it? That that James Bond is wish fulfillment not just for Ian Fleming, but, but for, for a Britain that is staring into the abyss of its own decline yeah i don't really i this is a terrible is thing to say about my own editor that i don't really i don't completely share his thesis um but i don't completely share his thesis because actually at first during the heyday of austerity the bond books aren't terribly successful it's actually much a bit later on in the sort of late 1950s early 1960s that the sales really take off and that's after austerity is gone but i think to me the the bond books are clear their wish fulfillment on the part of Ian Fleming, because he's he's hankering after the Second World War, and he has this sort of, he's living out this weird fantasy life, um, through the books of what he thinks a man should be. But you don't think that this is a fantasy that's shared by lots of people, who had enjoyed the war, and who find that, you know, the the post-war reality rather grey and drab. Uh, and... Possibly. I, I think it's... Po yes, I think there's an element of nostalgia for the war, certainly. Rob, but mm, I buy that more than I buy the argument that it's uh, it's all about the loss of empire. I don't really think that is in the forefront of people's minds, not least because a lot of the, the people reading the books are American um, right. and they don't give a damn about the loss of the British Empire. I mean, they're probably delighted by it. Um, I think it's... I think a lot of it is about... You know, in the post-war years, there's a lot of sort of anxiety about, you know, what it is to be a man. Obviously, women are flooding into the workplace. Gender roles are changing. And Bond, you know, anybody who's who grew up in these years knows that James Bond represents a kind of a sort of mad fantasy of sort of masculine omnipotence. OK, you know? so... so, so the inspiration lies in, in Ian Fleming's own sense of, of inadequacy. But can we broaden it out a bit? There's a question from Atley18 who asks, what was Fleming's inspiration for Bond? Some say it was partly based on his friend David Niven. Yeah. Is that true? 
Well, it's a very weird thing that um, Ian Fleming, when he was asked, consistently suggested David Niven to play James Bond because David Niven, David Niven um, had been, I think, a commando in, in the Second World War. So he's a very impressive man. But his screen persona is nothing like that at all. I mean, his screen persona is the cigarette holder, moustache, foppishness. I mean, basically a dressing gown in human form. I think, actually, the real the inspirations for James Bond... I mean, to me, they're not real people, they're, and they're blindingly obvious. They're two fictional characters. One of them is Richard Hannay, so that's um, John Buchan's... I mean, you must have read The 39 Steps. I have, you? and Green Mantle. And Green Mantle, exactly, is, and all those brilliant, so brilliant books. And, and Far that's, better written than the Ian Fleming books, in my view. And that, that they also provide the inspiration for the Bond villain. So mm. Green Mantle has a kind of sinister... Figure That's, in the background who's plotting, and also has a female, a female character. What's her name? Hilda von Einem, I think her name is in, in Green Mantle. Um, yes, and there's also a, a supervillain in a book called The Three Hostages called Dominic Medina. Yes, um, so he's a very Bond villain sort of character. Uh, so, so there's Richard Hannay. Richard Hannay is a South African. Um, what is he? Has he been a mining engineer or something? And he's yeah, come he's, back he's to a Britain. prospector, isn't he? He's yeah, and he's but he's an adventurer. Yeah, he's a, he's a he's a he's a he's a he's not a spy. He's a secret agent, which is true of Bond as well, because Bond does very little spying. Um, There's that brilliant, also that brilliant um, prescription in John McNabb, where there's I think it's um, it's it, it, it's it's people in Clubland, like yeah. Ian Fleming was, who who have us you know feel a bit kind of seedy, a bit drab, a bit like they may be a bit ill, and they go to the doctor. And the doctor, the doctor's prescription is that they should go and steal a horse <laughs> from someone in a country where horse thieves get hanged. That's brilliant. And it's that well, kind that's... of like, that idea that adventure for adventure's sake. That's is... exactly. Hannay has that all the time. Hannay is always saying in the John Buchan books, he hates London. He doesn't like peacetime. He 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 dreams of life on the veldt. You know, when he could go big game hunting and stuff. And the other, and, and that's also a parallel with the other big inspiration, I think, for James Bond, which is Bulldog Drummond. Have you ever read Bulldog Drummond? No, I've never read Bulldog by, Drummond. By, by a guy called H.C. McNeil, Sapper. Uh, Sapper was his nom de plume, writing in the... I imagine it's the kind of thing your brother and Al Murray would probably <laughs> love. Um, uh, so he's writing the aftermath of the First World War. And um, Bulldog Drummond is a World War One veteran who's... He's ugly... Um, he's in a very sort of masculine, sexy way, not unlike Daniel Craig's Bond, I would say. Um, and he drifts around Clubland as well. And basically he finds employment with his mates fighting conspirators who are trying to undermine the British Empire and so on. So the villains in Bulldog Drummond, there's a, the main villain is a guy called Carl Peterson. Um, and they're fantastic. They're fantastic insights into the kind of paranoid imagination of the 1920s. So they're Germanic they're Jewish, they're connected with Wall Street and high finance, but they're also funding Bolshevik left-wing... So they're rootless cosmopolitans. They're absolute rootless cosmopolitans. And actually, that's true of Fleming's villains as well. So somebody like Blofeld. Blofeld is half Polish, half Greek. <laughs> A very kind of weird combination. Um, and, and he's drifted around Europe before setting up Spectre, which is itself pure rootless cosmopolitanism, because Spectre... Um, Blofeld's conspiratorial organisation, which is very 1920s actually, has Gestapo people in it, and Russians, and Yugoslavs, and, and all kinds. Oh, and Dominic, what what about Fu Manchu? The yes, that, that must also the, be a part of the incredibly Fu Manchu, racist absolutely. portrayal of a Chinese supervillain. 
Yes, because Fu Manchu is Doctor No, um, basically. So Fu Manchu is created by Sax Roma, starts in the 1910s. So initially it's contempt. Fu Manchu is the missing link, I guess, between Sherlock Holmes and James Bond. So Fu Manchu starts or in the 1910s. Professor Moriarty and Doctor No. Exactly. Yes, exactly. So Fu Manchu starts in the 1910s. Uh, it's pure kind of yellow peril, kind of anti-Chinese paranoia. And then uh, Sax Roma starts writing it again in the 1930s. And there are lots of Fu Manchu films. And this idea of the supervillain, whose agents are everywhere, uh, who is un-British, who is physically repulsive, uh, but is possessed of enormous mental powers. That, that's there in all, almost all the Fleming books. So almost all the Fleming James Bond villains are physically disgusting or deformed in some strange way. That's right. Um, There's a very funny list in Simon Winter's book. But yeah. Got no lung, or oh, they're covered in hair, or they have no hair, or <laughs> Blofeld has had his no earlobes. He's got no earlobes. <laughs> That's, That's right. It. I mean, by that point, you know, it's getting a bit desperate. <laughs> yeah, Scaramanga has a third nipple. I mean, yes. just ludicrous. Very, very, very peculiar. Kind of... <laughs> well, again, I mean, what kind... you get an insight into? Um... So, so Ian Fleming has this cocktail of stuff clearly floating around his head, and a. Bulldog Drummond, Fu Manchu, all this stuff. But he also has his own weird paranoias and neuroses. So he's in this weird relationship with um, uh, his wife, Anne. Well, when he becomes his wife, who was initially Lady Rothermere. Um, and they have this strange, what appears to be a kind of sadomasochistic relationship. And there's tons of sadomasochism. So who's the, the sadist? Books. And who's the well, that's It's very unclear. I mean, in the books... Um, Either Bond says again and again to to the the sort of Bond girls, I will beat you, I will spank you, you know, I will hit you. And then there's an awful book called The Spy Who Loved Me, which is the only one narrated by a woman, by a woman, Vivian Michelle. How successful is that? Not very successful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it's a really weird one because I think I'm trying to, it's yonked since I I read it and I tried to blank it out. Um, I think she's staying at a motel and two men attack her and Bond is the stranger who intervenes to rescue her. So there's no sort of conspiracy or espionage or anything really in it. Um, but she says it at various points in that book, you know, all women love to be taken. They love to be treated roughly. And and this is Fleming attempting to kind of ventriloquize what a woman thinks. And it's obviously utterly disastrous because it's just his fantasy of what a woman wants. Because um, is, it, is it in Dr. No, the novel, that the villain ties the girl up and threatens her with being devoured by crabs. Um, I, think there is, I think there is some <laughs> stuff quite, about crabs. Quite in, odd. Uh, she's, yeah. so she's tied up naked to a rock and he kind of shivers with delight at the thought of all the crabs coming up and yeah. pinching her. And clearly death. something's going on with something, him Fleming there. Something, yeah. something, something very strange <laughs> is going is on he, is, he, is he whistling while he's doing it? That's the question. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, I think, I, mean, I think that's a good question on which to uh, perhaps go for a break. Um, have a martini um, we could do some brand product placement um, all the kind yeah. of Bond stuff uh, and yeah. when we come back let's look at the way that um, the novels develop and then migrate into the films Okay. and the the, the chasm of difference that has really opened up <laughs> between, <laughs> between uh, the mores of Ian Fleming and the contemporary so we'll see you back in a minute Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. What does Colgate mean by live life to the brightest? Could it be a rich glass of red sipped inside a Parisian cafe on a snowy night when my gaze is met by a tall, mysterious... I mean, brushing is directed with Colgate Optic White Pro Series Toothpaste gives you a visibly whiter smile in just three days so you can live life to the brightest and finish that glass without worrying about teeth stains. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's Best Hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. We are talking James Bond. Um, and Dominic, we've looked at Ian Fleming. We've looked at uh, possible inspirations. Um, let's look at the novels now. Uh, and there's a, a great question here from um, Sam Zarifi. How would we view a Bond-like character from the other side? A Soviet or Chinese or Iranian agent granted a license to kill and blow up institutions of Western power. Should Bond finally face justice for his actions? Must Bond fall? Yes. Uh, well, obviously, Bond has killed a lot of people, so I suppose there are probably a lot of people out there who would like to see Bond fall. Um, how would it work? Well... I mean, were there? Were there kind of Soviet equivalents? Yes, there were. Time? And they did, yes. I mean, there were tons, of, especially in the 1960s, there were tons of um, Soviet equivalents and Eastern Bloc equivalents. And, and indeed, you know, Italian, French and so on. Lots of people tried to do James Bond. Um, I think the Britishness is absolutely central to Bond's image and Bond's success. Um, so I don't think they would... So, so there have been such agents, but they haven't worked as international commercial phenomena. Why do you phenomena. think that is? Well, this is a very big question. I think it's because the Britishness, um, rep for a lot of people, and, and not all listeners to this podcast, I think, will agree with this, but I think for a lot of people, the Britishness represents a kind of class, a kind of quality, um, which is what... So it's a kind of, there's a kind of consumerist element to it. So it's in the same way that, for example, if you're a, a recently, you know, if you're a Chinese or an, an Indian billionaire, you, you go and get your suit made on Savile Row, and you buy a Rolls Royce. And you and employ you, a British butler. And you employ a British butler, precisely. You don't, you know, you don't get an Italian butler. But you do. Or, you, you, well, you, you go and buy a vineyard in France? Or? You do, but there are specific British things that are seen to represent. So there's a sort of sense of a gentleman, you know, and you buy your house in Mayfair and, and you send your children to a British public school. Indeed, the same public school, Eton, that, um, that James Bond went to. But and he I think also James... went to Fetis, didn't he? He did, because he was kicked out of Eton for some mischief Which with a maid. Which is Tony Blair's old school. Yeah, a very different man. Yeah, and Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Interesting. Yeah, she went there as well, um, apparently. Maybe she could play James Bond in some um, yeah. you know, gender-neutral gender or whatever uh, 
remake. Anyway, um, yeah, so I think the Britishness is really important. And I think it, what it, Bond could only work in a world in which the British Empire had ceased to matter. Which is okay, so the, the, very like the Beatles. Of... Very like the Beatles, Tom. Okay, they only so succeed because Britishness is cool and not scary. Okay, so there's a question the same... from, from Stefan Jensen, yeah. friend of the show. Yes. How important has James Bond been relative to the Beatles in shaping global perceptions of post-imperial Britain? I think very important. So that's I the think films, it's the... basically, isn't it? Rather yeah, than it, the books. purely the books. So book. the films it, start not the to be released in, in the 60s. Yes, 1962. So the films start to be released at perfect timing, at precisely the point where Britain no longer is a is a sort of top, top-ranked player in world affairs. And it's when the Union Jack is becoming a kind of ironic symbol. Exactly. Exactly. And Bond plays a big part in, in driving that. It, it's very like the Beatles. So it's both a symptom and a cause. And I think... Um, Bond and the Beatles together are the two most important things in creating an image of Britain as modern, uh, Britain as cool, as funny, as knowing, self-aware, all those things which were not part of our brand um, when we when our brand was dreadnoughts and making ball bearings. Um, but after those things no longer matter, then we kind of reinvented our brand. And I think Bond was... Ma I mean, Bond is... The, the Britishness of Bond is always slight, is always ambiguous, isn't it? Because Bond takes pleasure in it. You know, what, what's Bond doing? Keeping the British end up, sir. And, and sort of... He's got a Union Jack parachute and all these kind of things. And yet, at the same time, he's also it's sort of self-aware and he's poking fun at it. And I think um, that that only works in a country that has been powerful and now has lost a lot of that power um but has lost it in this sort of not in a terribly traumatic way that so it's 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 perfectly happy to joke about it and to kind of ironize it um and i don't think there are many other countries that that were in the same position to do that kind of thing because for example france's loss of power i think was probably much more traumatic because of algeria and and the occupation and so on britain has none of that so britain can kind of british culture can kind of make a joke about britishness and about victorianism and the empire in, in a way that other countries don't but it, it there is also i'm going to quote here uh, a leading specialist on the subject yeah um th the difference with the beatles and this the leading specialist writes this bond we are led to understand is the kind of man who plays a lot of baccarat not the kind of man who spends his evenings at working men's clubs in barnsley yeah that's me from I, the opening sentences that. of fleming's first book to the last scene of skyfall there has never been a more seductive advertisement for the upper class establishment yeah well, that's, that's that true. was you yeah, well, of course yeah. you do, because you wrote well, it. I stand by my own words. <laughs> um, no, I think Bond Bond is offering a a vision, a, a remarkably unchanging vision of upper-class Britishness. You see, um, that's what I missed, because I had Roger Moore in a safari suit. Yeah, and that's probably the point at which that was least... That was least pronounced. But even yeah. now, Daniel Craig... I mean, Daniel Craig is from the Wirral. He's uh, the son of a pub landlord. Or Pierce Brosnan. Pierce Brosnan, an Irish immigrant who went to a comprehensive school. So there's always a slight tension between the person playing the part and the character. And that was definitely true of Sean Connery. And that's true of Sean okay, Connery. So there's Milton a great question from um, yeah. Capel Loft. Bond in the books is a Scot who's been played by a Scot, an Australian, two Englishmen, a Welshman and an Irishman, but is seen as the epitome of Englishness by many. What does he tell us about the changing beliefs and anxieties about Britain post-World War II? Well, I think th th I saw that question. And I thought what a great question it was, because it's very hard to answer unambiguously, because there is a kind of ambiguity about Bond. The Bond character is half Scottish, half Swiss. 
So his father was a Scottish, supposedly, worked for a, a Scotsman who worked for an arms manufacturer of Vickers, and his wife, uh, Monique, came from Switzerland, and they die in a climbing accident. Bond is initially educated abroad, and then he goes to Eton. And in fact, I'll just read you out something from Moonrake, one of the early Bond books. Bond is reflecting on his own appearance, and he says of himself, something a bit cold and dangerous in that face, looks pretty fit, may have been attached to Templar in Malaya or Nairobi, Mau Mau work, tough-looking customer. Bond knew there was something alien and un-English about himself. He knew he was a difficult man to cover up, particularly in England. He shrugged his shoulders. Abroad was what mattered. He would never have a job to do in England. Because the irony is in Moonraker is set entirely in England in the book. But he's un-English. Um, and his un-Englishness, I think, is, is he's like Hannay to that extent. So he's kind of... It's as though contemporary England has become dissipated and unmanned, and Bond is a sort of flashback to an old, a vanished age. And, and the reason that he can be that is because of his un-Englishness. So in a weird way, having un-English people play him kind of makes sense. But you're right that abroad, this is the really weird and strange thing, that abroad people see him as the consummate Englishman. And a lot of that, I think, is to do with the suit, the style, the swagger, and the sense of 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 complete knowledge and confidence. So Bond can walk into any hotel anywhere in the world. Ah, Mr. Bond, your usual suite. Which you is know, he not knows good if... stuff for spy, is it? No, but he's Everybody not a spy. Knows... He's not a spy. That's the point about James Bond. Everyone thinks spy, he's a spy, but he's me. not. Well, but he's, he doesn't do any spying. He's basically <laughs> he the, just walks he's... around <laughs> drinking. Yeah. Expensive drinks and buying consumer durables. Well, exactly. He's a consumerist <laughs> fantasy. Agreed. He but he's, all, he's basically like an assassin. Sort of thumb. He's basically an assassin. That's, I think, what James Bond is. Yeah, but he's even so, if you're an assassin, I mean, yeah. if that's your job and everyone knows who you are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm aware it's not a realist novel. Yeah, but it's terrifying, though. You're scared because <laughs> you know James Bond is coming. He's just checked into the presidential suite in the, t in the city's leading five-star hotel. He's, he's eating oysters and, and, and ordering smoking, martinis. smoking very high, specially prepared high-nicotine cigarettes, yeah. of which apparently he smokes 70 a day. I mean, the thing, same thing about Bond, my son said this to me the other day, we were talking about James Bond, he said, does it work, does every major luxury hotel in the world have a suite prepared for James Bond on the off chance? You know, whenever he walks in, I never check into a hotel like that. You know, people say, oh, the room's not ready. Actually, we don't have a, a suite hanging around. This guy walks in with emphysema, puffing yeah. and wheezing. Oh, Mr. Bond. They're never fully booked. No. Well, goodness. Um, but having said that, I, I, and you mentioned Moonraker, which I yeah. was intrigued because Moonraker, of course, I know as as the attempt to, to rip off Star Wars. I mean, yeah, yeah. one of my favourite Bond films. And fatally corpulent Roger Moore doing an improbable impression of Luke Skywalker. Yeah, um, which, which was, I, I mean, you could perhaps say summed up late seventies Britain. Uh, There's a fantastic, my favorite, one of my favorite Bond moments actually is when he walks into a sort of NASA or whatever, and he's looking for. He's been told to look for Doctor Goodhead. Doctor Goodhead, <laughs> and he says, "I'm looking for Doctor Goodhead." And there's a woman there standing with a clipboard. She says, "You just found her," and he says, "A woman." <laughs> kind of such disbelief, and Modern War's eyebrow is halfway up his head with amazement oh, yes, that a woman eyebrow. could have a doctorate. And <laughs> be called Goodhead. Oh yes, Doctor Holly oh, Goodhead. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. But but uh, the original Moonraker I was intrigued to read is is you mentioned this is set entirely in England. It is. 
yes. and revolves around um, Sir Hugo Drax, who is a model clubman, who then turns he out is... to have been a Nazi. But he cheats, doesn't he? That's the giveaway. He's been, che- he's he been cheating cards. at cards. Um, and, and also M he, says... he sucked his thumb at public school. <laughs> M says he cheated at cards. So that shows there's something a bit off about him. You know, check him out. Bond checks him out and discovers that uh, Sir Hugo is actually... Is he Graf Hugo von der Drache? Is he a German war criminal or something? And he's going to fire these missiles back at Britain and destroy Britain. Nuclear missiles. In revenge for having been bullied at public school. For sucking his thumb. Yeah. There's a lot um, going on there. There's, a, there's an awful... Yeah, there's an awful... And also, Sir Hugo Drax was named after Admiral Sir Reginald Aylmer Ranfurly Plunkett Early Early Drax. Well, everybody's named after somebody. Yes, in, so um, um, Blofeld is named after the father of Henry Blofeld, the... Cricket cricket commentator. Exactly, exactly. I thought you'd you'd enjoy that. Well, I was um, going to. I was going to open with that actually, but then I got your (laughs) this thing about whistling. Whistling. That was well. Goldfinger. Goldfinger is a is an is an architect, and um, he was a modernist architect. Yeah. And uh, Erno Goldfinger, and um, Fleming had a violent dislike because Fleming was so reactionary. He disliked everything about the modern world and modern Britain, and he hated Goldfinger's modern architecture, and. he so he initially he want, he had he named the character Goldfinger. Uh, Erno Goldfinger was outraged and, and threatened to sue him, and and Fleming said if he was forced to change it, he would change it to Goldprick instead. <laughs> and, and Erno Goldfinger decided that you know to withdraw from the fray at that point that he would just have to lump it. Um, but it must be incredibly frustrating for Erno Goldfinger, who's a very acclaimed modernist architect. Yes. But basically, you know, his name is now famous for odd job throwing his bowler hat that kills people. Yes. You don't yeah. know what I'm talking about, do you? Because you've probably no, never I do. seen Goldfinger. I do, because, I, again, I've read your book. OK. Uh, Old Job has no feeling in his hands, and so he can do karate chops. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's a very impressive person, Old Job. I mean, if I was going to employ a, a personal, you know, a, 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 a personal a man gentleman. servant to kill people. Yeah. That's then what you do. He, he's what I'd go for, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, so, so all this... Uh, I mean, also, it's all very odd. Um, and as I said, I, th- I think it's a much older than, say, Sherlock Holmes, which kind of focuses attention on the scale of change that's happened over yeah. the past decade. So there's a question from James Beamish. Is James Bond one of the best windows into the change of the concept of masculinity over time? From the faint misogyny of Connery to the suave and funny Moore, and now with Craig, whose character is somewhat conflicted and flawed. Well, that's, I think that's a brilliant question. Actually, it is a brilliant John, question. And quite, and quite right. I but think, I would um, say that the, the, the character being somewhat conflicted and flawed, you know, Craig, Daniel Craig's, is because yeah. you're having to reconcile James Bond created by <laughs> this awful man Ian Fleming with the radically different assumptions of society now, aren't you? Absolutely, I mean, yes. The, and I think the, the only way they the only way they can do that without without dropping much of what makes James Bond James Bond is to is to make his masculinity kind of toxic, to use the, the current jargon. So, you know, whereas in the 1960s, Sean Connery drank a lot, you know, um, slapped women on the on the backside. Uh, he was ostentatiously kind of misogynistic and audiences thought it was hilarious and liberated, or at least male audiences did. You couldn't do that now. And so all when Daniel Craig, he, he's seen as drinking too much, his womanizing is seen as a sign of his failure to form attachments. 
Um, he's and he's portrayed as damaged in a way that James Bond in the 1960s never was. So there's something wrong with Daniel Craig's Bond. And was there a hint in one of them that that he had had gay experiences? Yes, right. He's uh, so um, <clears throat> Javier Bardem's character, Raoul Silver, is does a strange thing of stroking uh, Daniel Craig's yeah. knees or something and thighs and says, you know, I bet this. You know, this is the first time for everything and or something. And uh, Daniel Craig says, what makes you think this is my first time? So um, have, we, have we ever heard Daniel Craig's Bond whistle? <laughs> <laughs> well, Timothy Dalton's Bond whistles in a very interesting way. Uh, very, very, very timely given the headlines at the moment. So he's imprisoned in, a, in, a, in Afghanistan in a Soviet airbase with some with a leader of Mujahideen. And the way he gets out is by whistling at his key fob which is his gadget, he whistle, he wolf whistles at this thing and it explodes and he's able to escape from the cells with the Mujahideen leader, who it turns out went to Oxford. Oh, well, that's so, all right. So it's fine, yeah. So he would never have joined the Taliban. Is that Imran Khan? Or? Uh, it's, it's a character who's clearly... He's called Cameron Shah and he's played by Art Malik. Right. Um, he's very, very sophisticated. He's very, very civilised. I guess I'm very well with Bond. So he's the a friend, not a villain. The Mujahideen are tremendous fellows in the Living okay. Daylights. Okay. 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 Well, well here, here's another question from perhaps for a James Bond episode, the appropriately named Titmouse. Right. Um, in brackets, maybe don't use his name, but I just. Yeah. Know. Too uh, late. Yeah, too late. Um, does Bond have to be white British male in order to remain true to the roots of the character? As with many people, I'd like to see Idris Elba do it. Well, Idris Elba is now much too old. So. But Dan Craig's quite old, isn't he? Yes, but they're not going to replace him with somebody of the same age or, or thereabouts. No, I that's true. Um, uh, that's a, so does he have to be male? I think I think almost certainly yes. Uh, but, you, I mean, you could have a female secret agent. Of course you could. And you could do a whole series of films about a female secret agent. But, but it wouldn't be Bond. The, it wouldn't be Bond. The masculinity, the sort of what we would now call the toxic masculinity is so central to, to Bond. Um, I mean, that's one reason I think he's appealed and he appeals in America is because he represents a vision of what it is to be a man. And I'd, I'd, obviously that's not going to work if he if Tilda Swinton plays him. Uh, does he have to be British? I think he has to be playing a character who works for the British Secret Service. I mean, at various points, the filmmakers have flirted with the idea of kind of Burt Reynolds or various American actors, but they've never done it. I think he has to be British or can pass for British. So he I mean, Jason Bourne is, is a kind of an American attempt to have a... But nobody dreams of being Jason Bourne, do no. they? No. So, and you don't say to somebody, oh, that's the kind of thing Jason Bourne would do. You know, so, you don't order a drink that Jason yeah. Bourne... Uh, Bond is not just a character. He's a sort of collection of... Well, he's a collection of consumerist aspirations. He's a collection of brand names, isn't he? But as you say, British. But British, the British... British in British... Yeah. Style Aston Martin, and class and Bentley, snobbery, perhaps. Absolutely, rooted in British snobbery. Now, the whiteness is the other interesting question. At what point can you have? Could you have? I mean, clearly, a, a black Bond in in 1980, there would have been probably a lot of consumer resistance, uh, audience resistance, should we say? Would there be audience resistance now? I think it's unlikely. Actually, I think you could quite comfortably have a um, a black James Bond. What do you think? I, yeah, I wouldn't. I don't care. I mean, the interesting thing... That, well, great. <laughs> I mean, um, the interesting thing is, I think you... I think the British... I think I would say a British audience would definitely wear a black James Bond. It'd be interesting whether, let's say... I mean, from the filmmaker's point of view, the two biggest audiences are probably the United States and China. 
would they take a black I mean, what, what, what I'd say about Idris Elba and why people always seem to mention him is that he's very cool. Yes, and Bond is and, meant to be cool. And Sean Connery was clearly cool. And he Roger was a Moore's Scottish very cool, film, wasn't he? And, and um, yeah. Ian Fleming was always complaining about it. Yeah. But because yeah. he was cool, he became basically the kind of the, the face of Bond. And he was much and, cooler and than David Niven. Much I mean, cooler. And, yeah. and Daniel Craig is, is quite cool, but Idris Elba is kind of off the scale cool. Yeah. So in that sense, it, it, would, it would be returning to the, the model of, of Sean Connery, I guess. Yes, I think, I think that's... I just think he's too old. Um, I, I accept that, but but if he'd been cast, I don't know, in ten or the, fifteen years ago, or something, yeah, perhaps. then I think he could have. I think he absolutely could have done it. Yes, I agree. Right, um, Dominic, do you think is there anything else you've got to say about Bond as a cultural phenomenon, shedding light on recent history, or can we get on to the question <laughs> from Sam MB, who is the best Bond, and Diego Morgado, which Bond film is the best? Um, you got anything? I, any, anything? I've got loads to say, but clearly you're desperate. To, you're dying to get onto these questions. So let's get onto these questions. Okay. So who's the um, best Bond? Who's the best Bond? Well, see, my, my favourite Bond is not the best Bond. My favourite Bond is obviously Roger Moore because he's the um, Bond I grew up with, and yeah, I like his ironic. I me like too. his er- ironic take on the character, and I, I find that. Uh, and he was a tragically, man, wasn't he? I actually still find it very funny. There's also a very, very good story about Roger Moore that paints him in an absolutely splendid light. Have you seen this circulating on Twitter? I have, so, but tell it, so, because lots so of people may a, not have heard it. There's a, a, a bloke who um, ended up working in TV and film, and he tells a story about how when he was a little boy, he went on... He was travelling, I think, at Nice Airport with his grandfather in the days when airport passengers were not really segregated by class or whatever. And he sees Roger Moore. This is when Roger Moore is playing James Bond. And he goes up and he asks Roger Moore for his autograph. And Roger Moore, or his grandfather, gets the autograph for him. And it comes back and the autograph is there, Roger Moore. And this little boy who's seven is devastated because he hasn't signed it as James Bond. He's signed it as this man that he's never heard of. So the grandfather goes back or something and says, you know, why haven't you signed it as uh, James Bond? He says, well... I've done it under an assumed name because I'm worried that Blofeld is here. <laughs> Blofeld will be listening. It's a lovely thing to have done. And um, many, many years later, this boy has grown up and he's working as a lighting man or a cameraman or something for a film they're doing for UNICEF. And Roger Moore, who did a lot for UNICEF, is, is doing it. And um, at some point, this bloke says to Roger Moore, you, you know, you won't remember this, but when I was seven, you did a lovely thing where you signed an autograph for me and then you said you had to sign it as Roger Moore, not as Bond, because uh, Blofeld was listening. And um, <laughs> Roger Moore said, oh, you're right, I don't remember it, but it's, that sounds lovely, thank you for telling me, and all this kind of thing. They do the day's filming, and at the end, Roger Moore's on his way out. Roger Moore stops by this bloke, and he whispers to him, he says, of course I remembered it. <laughs> but, of course I remembered it, but I couldn't admit it, because any of these, any of these other crewmen could be working for Blofeld. <laughs> and it kind of goes off. It's, I know. it's such a lovely thing for him to have done. I know, I know, um, I know. So, so for so that reason... He's the favourite uh, Bond, but not the best, perhaps. No, I think the best, in terms of the... Well, Sean Connery, obviously, the, the canonical Bond is Connery. Connery created the character without Connery. I mean, Connery only did it because he was cheap. So the, the first Bond film, Doctor No, the budget was a million dollars, which is nothing 
in early 1960s Hollywood. They got Connery because it's cheap, because it's tied to a franchise that probably isn't going to do very well. And Connery completely makes it. And had they employed almost anybody else, I don't think it would have been successful. So you know, Connery is the sort of founding father, really, arguably, as, just as much as Ian Fleming. In terms of the best actor, I mean, there's no question Daniel Craig is by far the best actor, and he's given by far the most kind of multi... I mean, as, as, insofar as James Bond is multi-layered. But is, that what, multi -layered is that what people want? Well, he's been tremendously successful, Daniel yeah. Craig's Bond. I mean, coming at a point where... So the previous Bond film, Die Another Day, before Craig took over, had been an absolute joke with a kind of invis invisible car. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Madonna was in it, and it was just rubbish. It was awful. <laughs> Pierce Brosnan's last film. And Craig really turned it around. So um, uh, he'll be very hard to replace, I think. But he's taken it as far as you can in kind of a very hard, sort of hard-edged conflicted bond i mean they'll have to go back to a slightly more roger Oscar Moorish. powers yeah i would have said so yeah. because otherwise they'll just be doing a poor man's daniel kingsman. craig have you seen kingsman with colin firth no i haven't i'm oh, not a great, great man for for no, bond no, it's, it's wonderful it's really See, wonderful because whenever i go to a bond parody i just really want to be watching a bond film i don't want to watch some imitation it's not really I just rather watch moonraker again i'd say it's more an homage i mean it, it, homage. it loves it it loves bond okay it's not taking the okay. piss it's it's do check it it's really great I loved it I've seen okay. it about 10 times and what's your um, other question uh, which Bond film is the best well again the best or my favourite so the best is so Skyfall favorite. the favourite first well my, I have two favourites one is Octopussy um, I <laughs> love Octopussy that's the way he dresses up as a clown isn't it <laughs> he defuses a bomb a nuclear bomb in a circus a, yeah that's exactly so you do know your Bond films well I saw I saw all the Roger Moore ones and um, um, Udoper Yes, VJ Armitage, the tennis player, is, is his local fixer. And Bond does this terrible thing when he's made a lot of money in a casino and he gives all this money to his Indian collaborators and says, um, that should keep you in curry for a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, so there's, yeah. A lot of, there's a lot of banter that doesn't really stand <laughs> the test say. of time. Yeah. But uh, I always like that because um, that's set in the Lake Palace in Udaipur. Oh, I know and, where we're going with this. And I then subsequently bowled the Crown Prince of Udaipur. Yeah. You've never um, been approached to be in a Bond film, Tom? No, but... Strange. No, um, I, so I like Octopussy, but my absolute favourite Bond film is Live and Let Die. Which um, one's that? That's Voodoo. That's Voodoo, oh, early that's, 1970s. Oh, that's the one, Wings. Blaxploitation. Yeah, now that's a film, to confess to a great fondness for Live and Let Die is slightly... is risky, because it's a film that really hasn't stood the test of time. So... Um, I found it absolutely transfixing as a child and, and terrifying and, and completely persuasive. Um, but now when I watch it, I can't help noticing that all the black characters are part of the conspiracy and that nobody in the conspiracy is white. And the voodoo scenes probably would not pass muster with a, with a young audience. Is that today. the one where he runs across the line of crocodiles? He does. He yeah. so Jane Seymour plays a fortune teller called Solitaire, whose powers depend on her being a virgin, and Bond <laughs> um, <laughs> Bond sleeps with her and she loses her powers. It's very unfortunate. Um, is, that, uh, so, is, he, very, is he sleeping with her for Britain? Yeah, he's, I mean, it's always for England. You know, for as England, he often yeah. as he often says. So I saw Live and Let Die last summer um, in a cinema during the lockdown when people were screening old films. Um, a cinema near us had Live and Let Die, and I took my son to see it. And I looked along the um, the row, so it was a Saturday afternoon screening. And I was thinking, what other sad middle-aged men are there with their sons watching Live and Let Die? And um, the, the nearest man to us was uh, Sam Mendes, 
the director of Skyfall, <laughs> with his son. And so basically I spent the rest of the film trying to think of ways in which I could manufacture becoming friends with Sam Mendes at the end of the and film. And getting a role. And my strategy was to sort of say very loudly as soon as the lights went up, well, it's good, but it's not as good as Skyfall. <laughs> which you're naming is as the best. Yeah, I think it probably is the best. Because um, it's the the script is the cleverest. Uh, it's the it's the most thoughtful about 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 the Bond phenomenon itself. It's got a tremendous villain in um, Javier Bardem, and it does a very interesting thing. So it doesn't have really a traditional Bond girl. M Judy Dench mm. is the main sort of female character. Is that the one where they end up in Scotland? They do at Bond's, Bond's old old, yes, old family them. family home. Yeah. Um, so it's a sort of journey back into Bond's own past, um, which I like as well. When will Bond stop? How long will it go on for? I think it'll continue for quite a long time, actually. I think um, as long as it makes money. So every time the Bond film comes out, The Guardian unfailingly runs an op-ed saying it's time for to kill off James Bond. He's misogynist and it's Cold War relic and all this stuff. Um, but then you look at the box office returns and you think, you know, you can howl into the void as much as you like. But as long as it's making money, Eon Productions, which is the, the company that makes it, are going to continue churning them out. And, and it's I think basically it, the only British kind of superhero franchise. Yes. It? Yes, I suppose it is. Um, but actually, a different way of putting that, Tom, is it's virtually the only non-American yeah, um, superhero franchise, and I think American audiences will will take will accept a British superhero, but, but they wouldn't accept it... him if he was German. Let's say, would they? I mean, imagine if he was Belgian, Belgian Secret Service, you know, yeah, uh, Jean Luc, Jean, you know, uh, well, they had Jean Luc Picard. In yeah, Star but Trek. I mean, but I mean, yeah, I played by English. English. I know, I know, like, yes, I know, lives I know. in Stratford upon Avon. I mean, yes, I, know. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I, I guess the challenge is. Um, can which we've talked, you know, hinted at throughout the whole thing is can a, a figure who is rooted in the snobbery and the racism and the sexism of someone who is reactionary by the standards of the fifties, yeah, last into a very different age, and I uh, guess that that's what Daniel Craig has been about. Yeah, and Daniel Craig has shown that you can do that actually. Yeah. Um, you don't, Bond doesn't need to be woke, as it were. I mean, Bond merely needs to be um, not, not a, not a racist, not offensive. Yeah, not offensive. Yeah. And and Bond, but since the character has always been slightly reactionary, I don't think it's a problem for him still to be slightly reactionary. So, in Goldfinger, Sean Connery, nineteen sixty four, Sean Connery is disobliging about the Beatles. Yes, he, he says, says uh, you can't, yeah, you can't. You should listen to them with earphones. Yeah, with earmuffs, exactly. Yeah. Drinking Dom Perignon, not chilled, is like... Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So Bond has always been a bit of an old man in that respect. So if ta he doesn't need to be cool. Because that's Ian Fleming, right? Yeah, because it's Ian Fleming, but also because a lot of... Because, you know, who goes to see Bond films? I mean, sort of teenage boys and middle-aged men like me. Um, so in a way, I don't really think it needs to... You know, it, it has a brand that works, and though th that audience is not going away. I mean, that audience will change and evolve, but it's not going to disappear. Okay, well, that's I think that's James Bond done. And um, great. If people who want to read more, I would recommend Dominic's book, The Great British Dream Factory, which has a fantastic chapter on Bond. Um, so uh, go and see the new film and then read Dominic's book. Uh, we will be back, um, obviously, probably on Thursday with more. 
historically themed Banter. podcastery. Um, we will see you then. Bye bye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.